Uh, welcome to the first ever live Penguin podcast. My name is Richard E. Grant, and in this episode, I'm joined by Bill Bryson at the Cambridge Corn Exchange. <laughs> Excuse very me. well trained and behaved. Sorry, Richard, excuse me. Excuse me. Is, is this live? It is live, yeah. I didn't know that. Can I, does this mean I can't say f <laughs> In front of these are <laughs> Yes, anything you want. Thank you for joining me, and hello, everybody. Hello, children. Bill Bryson. <laughs> uh, Bill Bryson has written just about everything, literally. His book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, won the Royal Society's Aventis Prize, as well as the European Union's highest literary award, He's written books on language, on Shakespeare, and on his own childhood. His critically acclaimed books, At Home, A Short History of Private Life, and One Summer, America 1927, were both history books. His travel book, A Walk in the Woods, is now a major movie starring Robert Redford as Bill and Emma Thompson, as me. And it was just <laughs> over 20 years ago that Bill first published Notes from a Small Island, a book which has become one of the most loved books of recent decades, and which a BBC poll voted as the book that best represents Britain. But we're here... He's there. Thank you. We're here to talk about Bill's latest journey, which has just gone straight to number one in the Sunday Times bestseller lists. Uh, and this one is appropriately called The Road to Little Dribbling. More notes from a small island. So, Bill, uh, you've brought with you five objects that have shaped and inspired your new book. And before we get to the first object, does it really seem like 20 years since Notes from a Small Island? No, um, no, it didn't. I mean, I was really quite surprised. What, as, I, as I say in the book, what happened was I went out to lunch with my publisher, and he was, we were talking about topics for the new book, and he said to me with a little glint in his eye, do you know that it's been 20 years since you did, since you did Notes from a Small Island? And I was really, really quite startled by that. Um, and he suggested that, it, that it, a sequel might be an appropriate thing to do. And I was quite dubious about it at first, but I gave more thought to it. And, and I realized that actually, when you think about it, a lot has changed in, in the country at large. I mean, when I look at Notes from a Small Island, all the politicians that I wrote about it there are not only gone, but they're completely forgotten. I mean, Thank God. Yes, really. Um, and been, re been replaced by loads more new non-entities. But um, the, and, and, and I came across what really happens. You're very really radical. Happens, I came across a picture of myself from exactly 20 years ago when I was promoting the first book. Yeah. And it, you never want to look at a picture of yourself from exactly 20 years ago, because it is really, really a most dispiriting thing to do. Uh, and I just saw, I, I have changed so much. I mean, I was a comparatively young man then. And, uh, and you know, now I'm this person who's, who's cruising into dotage. And I thought, well, that, that alone is reason enough to go out and have another look at the country. Because not only has the country changed, but my relationship to it has changed. But do you, do you feel any different inside? I know the outside of both of us looks more, <clears throat> less pristine than it was 20 years ago. But do you feel any different inside? Every bit of me, every organ is just falling apart. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> OK. You wrote notes from a small island because you were moving back to the US and wanted to take a final trip around the UK before you left. For the road to little dribbling, you travel the UK again. So the incentive that you've just said essentially came from your publisher. But what, was it money that drove you to do it again or just curiosity? No, it was money that drove him to suggest it. <laughs> but I thought that it might was... be the case. But no, it wasn't. I mean, I, I really was genuinely a little doubtful. I thought, you know, I wrote about, I've said what I had to say about Britain. I traveled around the country. Um, and then I went and had a, a little mini trip and, and was thinking, if I were traveling around for a book now, what, what would I be wanting to write about? I sat down and made a list of subjects that I might want to write about. And I realized there is actually a lot of new material. There's a lot that's happened, a lot of issues that have arisen um, with for the country generally and for me personally in the last 20 years. And, and as always happens with, with me, this, this is really, you know, it's as much a book about me uh, as it is about Britain. I mean, it starts with me being hit on the head with a, by an automatic parking barrier in, in France. It's an absolutely true story. I somehow managed to stand underneath an open parking barrier with, without reflecting upon the fact that it was about to close. Uh, uh, so it, it, as, as always with these things, it, it, it ends up being as much about me as it is about the, the, the um, ostensible subject. 
Do you think that, um, because I'm an immigrant like you, in the sense that you know, I've lived my entire adult life, practically since I was 25, in, in England, that Rudyard Kipling said so aptly that uh, what and what do they know of England who only England knows? Do you think that that, that fits your sensibility of that you have an outside view of something that you have endorsed as your own? Yeah, it, 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 I think it's definitely an advantage to, if you're a writer, um, certainly to, to, to have some distance from the, the subject you're writing about. And it's part of the reason why I write so often about Britain or about the United States, because I have this distance. I have a certain familiarity and intimacy with both of them. I've spent almost exactly half my life in each country. So I can claim to know them pretty, each of them pretty well. But at the same time, just because of the circumstances of my life, I am always a step back. It's especially true in Britain, I think. Um, I mean, one of the things we're going to be talking about is I, I took out British citizenship yeah. last year, but it will never make me, just having a British passport, will never make me British. I mean, I'm never going to be British in the way that my wife is, who, was, who is English and was born here. And I'm quite comfortable with that. I mean, I'm very pleased to live in this country, but it's, it suits me, you know, well, just... If, hypothetically, the um, national rugby team didn't do very well, for instance, yeah. I, don't, <laughs> I don't have to take any blame for it. I'm crossing my legs. <laughs> very, very painful. Right. So, in the 20 years on, what... I don't know how you answer this, but what is the biggest difference that you've noticed, apart from the politicians all being, you know, changed suits? Oh, well, I think the big thing, the big surprise to me was, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of things. There's some things that have got better. I think the food keeps getting better and better, yeah. particularly the everyday food, the sort of, you know, sandwiches at lunchtime kind of food. I think that just gets better and better. One of the things I talk about was I was in uh, labor in this little market town in North Yorkshire, and some, uh, one of the little cafes there was, um, that I had for lunch a Cajun wrap, spicy Cajun wrap, and I just thought... If somebody said to me 30 years ago that, that you know, Yorkshire Dale's farmers would be going into labor and eating spicy Cajun rats for lunch. So that's all changed and got much better. Um, I think the National Health Service is much better. I think most services are better, the railways and all of that. For all the complaining we all do about it, I think they actually you know, run much more reliably by and large. And some things have got worse, much more litter now, something I go on about a lot. But I think the real, the real change is that there hasn't been so much change, that Britain does manage to hold on to a lot of things, in, often in the face of certain pressures. Um, the one that always amazes me is just how much, how much glorious countryside remains here, despite the fact that people everywhere want to build on it, and, and that it's under, it's under threat, not just from you know, the right, but also from the left now. I mean, everybody wants to get rid of the green belts, except me and about four other people, I think. And I, and I just think that's such a tragedy because it's so... If you come, you know, if you know the United States, you know how, how vitally important green belts are for containing cities um, and stopping them from just sprawling everywhere. Sorry, I went off on a bit yeah, of a tangent. Yeah, I just had it in my ear. He's gone off on one. Okay. <laughs> so, so, cut that bit out. Uh, time for your first object. I feel like Mrs. McGregor or whatever her name is. Ordnance Survey Map. Right. You refer to it as your trusty ordnance survey map. What is it about it that you treasure so much? And is it the detail, and do you collect them? Yeah, well, yes to both. I mean, I don't collect them in an in a, in a sort of obsessive way, but I do like to have any trip I make, any, anywhere I go, especially if I'm walking, which is generally the condition, is uh, I, I do like to get an ordnance survey map. I find them just... I just love them. I mean, I, I think most people who are even a little bit into maps, love ordnance survey maps, because there is something about the detail. This one I bought was the, is a Durness in Cape Wrath. The whole object of my book is getting from Bognor Regis to Cape Wrath in the far northwest of Scotland. So I brought that thinking this would be a good example, but actually it's a terrible example, because it's Cape Wrath. You, you won't be able to see it from where you're seeing it, but it's completely empty. It's just this... Uh, <laughs> But one of the things I love about ordnance survey maps generally is all the detail and the fact that they have all these little tumuli and, and you know, barrows and all kinds of just every, you know, and, and the fact that you can actually work out exactly where you are by seeing where the pylons run or where, you know, little B roads are and everything. I love that. So I having Google Map on your phone or SatNav or any of that, you don't, that's not something that you have embraced or endorsed? N no, I don't, I'm, I'll show you my phone. I'm sorry, I can't, can't yeah. find it. This is, this, this is my phone. That's it. 
Ah, I, you don't get... From the Jurassic Age. Yes, you don't get yes. sat-nav on, on that, no. So do you think that, I mean, are you part of a geeky ordnance survey map world of people that still use those? Oh, no, but it does, it does alarm me that, I, you know, I read that the ordnance survey maps, um, the paper maps are becoming more and more obsolescent and that there isn't anything like the demand for them. And I think that's just such a shame because it seems to me, genuinely seems to me, that a big part of any trip is the, the most exciting part is the planning of it, the thinking about it. And the most exciting part about the planning is to, is to sort of clear the kitchen table and spread a map out and, and, and really look at it. You're laughing at me as if that's no, pathetic. <laughs> but it's the true. The idea of my wife, who was born left-handed and forced to be right-handed, reading a map is, has caused more marital discord than almost anything else that I can imagine. So in my household, that is an impossibility. Right. But you're talking about hieroglyphics there. Yeah, no, well, yes, and I'm, I'm not very good at it. I'm really not. I mean, I, get, I do still get lost quite astonishingly often. But, um, but I do love to just look at them, and I, th I think there's something very fine about it. And, you know, I do now, because I've lived a long time and I've, I've done a lot of traveling around, I do have a great big box full of ordnance survey maps, and there's just something... It's, it's a you know, nice way to remember um, experiences you've had. And especially when they lead you to a number one best-selling book. I think, it's, I think it's an absolute <laughs> gift. So are you going to, are you going to donate all these things uh, when you can't walk anymore, God forbid, um, to a university? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know what I I'm going to do. I think you will, Bill. I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do with them. Um, I, hadn't, I hadn't given that any thought at all. Somebody will. We're in the university town. Is there an equivalent of these Ordnance Survey maps in the USA? No, and that's one of the reasons I love them so much, is because American maps... You know, American thinking when it comes to geography is of a different scale altogether. This is, I mean, this one, this one is four, number 446. I mean, if you told an American that an area the size of Britain would need at least 446 maps <laughs> to cover it adequately, they would just laugh in your face. I mean, they would want one map for Britain. Yeah. And, uh, and so the, the, the amount of detail that you get on American maps is just, it, well, it's non-existent. So you still, despite carrying these ordnance survey maps, you still manage to get lost quite a few times. Is that part of the attraction of doing what you do? Well, no, no but it's part of why I think I've been successful at doing what I do. I really do, because, you know, I'm not a very good traveler. I mean, I'm really not. I, I try hard, um, but I do, have, I do have an instinct for things going wrong. When I made the joke, I said about the parking barrier hitting me on the head, it really did hit me on the head. I mean, it wasn't something I thought, oh, I'll do this because it'll be, provide comical material for my next book. <laughs> I did it because I just forgot that the, I was standing underneath an open barrier. Um, so things like that do happen to me. And I do think that part of the reason, my guess is that part of the reason my books have been successful is that sort of thing, the getting lost and not being quite sure if you're on the right train and, and just being a little bit uneasy about whether things are going well or not because you're not sure. Is, resonates with people because I think that's the, the sorts of experience most of us have when we travel. We, we enjoy it, we, we're, we're excited by it, but we're also slightly intimidated or frightened or uneasy because, because you know, being confronted with a menu and you can't read, the, you can't read it with any, with any confidence and you don't know whether you've just ordered a, you know, a lovely steak or, or, or calves brain um, and that kind of thing. I think, I think that's something that most people recognize. So do you think, uh, it reminds me of the quote that John Lennon uh, uh, issued just before he was murdered, where he said that life is what happens in between your plans. And it seems to me that that, that going off piece, that? Yeah, that, that, that is the essence of what, of what you do and write so brilliantly. That's very kind of you to say, Richard. It's, I mean, what I do is I, I just, I go out and have these experiences and, and, you know, I just, I do kind of hope that things won't be, go swimmingly because, because then it wouldn't provide material for a book. Okay, can I ask you, what, because you've mentioned this twice now, getting bonged on the head by the barrier in the French car park. Do you, when you're lying half comatose on the tarmac, is it at that moment you think, oh, this is going to make a good paragraph in my book? Or <laughs> how, what's the division of time between that and actually writing it down? Well, the first day or so was was really was preoccupied with whether or not this was a mortal blow and whether I was going to survive it. <laughs> because... Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. It, it, it hurt so much. It hit me so hard that I really thought, as I was clearly surviving it, I thought, I can't be surviving this. It hit, you know, this, this, this is... It was like being hit with a baseball bat, you know, from... A, 
uh, it was really, really, really hurt like hell. And I just thought, this is, this, something has gone wrong here. And I just genuinely spent about 48 hours waiting to, I'm thinking that, that I've obviously survived it in the short term, but something's happened inside yeah. in it. Some hemorrhage is going to tear you off. Blood is pooling in my, in my head, um, even as I'm sitting here, and that at any moment I'm going to tip over, uh, just lose consciousness, and my eyes will roll up into my head and I'll fall over. Uh, and I was, so for about 48 hours, I just kind of sat quietly and didn't do too much, uh, just waiting for, for the moment for death to steal over me. And uh, then, then it gradually occurred to me that this actually might be a place to start my next book. Okay. Well, you could keel over right now. <laughs> the Ordnance Survey map appears in your list of pleasing Britannic things in the book. What else was on your list? Oh, well, I marked the page, so I'll gladly read it out to you. What it was, was as, as I was, this is right at the very end of the book, and as I was asking myself, why do I live here? I mean, what is it about this country that has such a hold on me? Why am I so happy here? What are the things? Because most of the time, you don't, don't think about it at all. And, and only when you have to do a, a book or have some reason like that to, to actually confront the question, do you, do, does it occur to you to wonder, what is it exactly, what specifically keeps me here? And so what I did was I genuinely did this. I was in, a, I was in Indianapolis, Indiana, and uh, I just sat down in a food court, and I just started making a list of all the British things that I really, really, really liked, just randomly, as they occurred to me. And, and the list was Boxing Day, country pubs, saying, you're the dog's bollocks, <laughs> as an expression of endearment or admiration, uh, jam roly-poly with custard, ordnance survey maps, I'm sorry I haven't a clue, Cream teas, the shipping forecast, the 20p piece, June evenings about 8 p.m., smelling the sea before you see it, villages with ridiculous names like shallow bowels and nether wallow. Uh, and that's as far as I got in making the list. And, what, and, and the point was, what I, what I realized from that was that the, all, of these, all of those were things that I would not have had in my life at all if I hadn't come to Britain. I would, you know, I would have had, if, I'd, if I had gone back to America after my summer of hitchhiking around Europe and resumed the life that, um, you know, fate seemed to have lined up for me, I, I wouldn't have had Boxing Day or I'm sorry I haven't a clue or any of that stuff. So, so it, it's really, I mean, a big part of the reason I like it here so much is that it gives me a million extra things that I wouldn't otherwise have had. But Bill, how, how is your life bereft if you didn't have a 20p piece? Well, I just think, I mean, I just think 20p pieces are, are strangely satisfying. There's something, <laughs> as coins go, in the world at large... Wow. If you have a handful of euros, there's nothing. There is nothing there to be pleased about. They're just... <laughs> they, they're just utilitarian objects that, that actually allow you to acquire things. But if you have 20p pieces and 50p pieces, it's a larger version of the 20p, obviously, yeah. um, there's something very pleasant about it. I mean, the one thing the British do very well is, is make coins. I don't know what it is in the national capital. <laughs> The two-pound coin is very fine. You, it's, honestly, if you find a two-pound coin, you're not only very happy that you're two pounds richer, but you've actually got something that's quite nice to have. <laughs> which brings us perfectly to your second object, which is your passport. My passport, yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> now, it says, it says here that you were born in Iowa, so let's go back to the beginning. And how, how was it growing up there? How was what? How, how was, what was it like? What, what was it, it was, like? It was idyllic. It was. Um, I, I didn't particularly appreciate it at the time, but it was idyllic. I was, you know, because I was growing up right in the middle of America, right in the middle of the 20th century, in in a nice middle class home, very happy family. So it was, it was, you know, t totally in the middle of everything, and uh, it was a great time. America in the 1950s was was a wonderful time to be a, a kid. Uh, you know, unlike Britain and all the rest of Europe, when the war ended, America didn't have any bomb damage, it didn't have any rebuilding to do. All of the, all of the factories that have been making tanks and armaments and munitions and so on, they just started making washing machines and televisions and consumer goods. Whereas, you know, here, people were rebuilding for, for years and years and years afterwards. And so I grew, I was born in 1951, and I, and I born straight into a world that was just one of, of extreme comfort and and luxury compared with my wife, who was born about the same time, but in England. I mean, I don't remember a time when we didn't have a telephone or, or television or car or refrigerator or all, you know, all of those things that my wife 
didn't get until, and for the most part, didn't, you know, she remembers all those things very clearly because they didn't come into her, her household until the 1960s. She spent most of her childhood without, without most of those things. Is she resentful towards you because you've grown up in such... <laughs> <laughs> no, well, if she, if she is, she hasn't expressed it. And... Especially, it's now number one, ka <laughs> No problem there. So when you came to the UK when you were 20, what drew you here if you, were, if you grew up on the lap of fabulousness in, in Iowa? I loved it here. I, I mean, it is a really strange thing. I genuinely, I, I got off the uh, ferry from Calais at, late at night on a March evening. It was a cold, gloomy night. It really was foggy, uh, just like I expected England to be, you know, kind of foggy night in Dover town. And, uh, I, and it, was, it was really bleak. And for some reason, I just loved it. I, I, and it was almost unnatural. And, and over the following days, I thought, I really do like it here. And one of the things that that people hardly ever notice is I am left-handed, and, and Britain's a very left-handed country. I mean, drive on the left. Um, if, when you do drive, you shift with your left hand, which is, you know, great if you're left-handed, but it's, a, it's kind of a hardship, I would have thought, for right-handed people. <laughs> but, but, but the one thing I really, particularly remember is you, you all know how Americans eat with a knife and fork, they cut, and then they change hands and everything. Yeah. Well, because I was left-handed, I never wanted to do that, and I, and it, I was the despair of my mother because... I ate the British fashion, um, you know, just holding the fork permanently in my left hand and the knife permanently in my right hand. And, and it used to, you know, it used to drive her mad because that's not the way you do it in the States. And I, and I didn't realize that anywhere else in the world they did it my way. And I get to Britain, it was a whole country. <laughs> and I just thought, I love these people. They eat like I do. So do you think that there's some, you're some DNA genetic throwback that drew you back here? Well, it was, I mean, I didn't think, oh, okay, I'm going to settle here because I like the way they handle their cutlery. <laughs> but, I was wondering. But, but it was a big part of me falling for the country. I mean, and, and then what happened was that I, I stumbled into a job at a psychiatric hospital um, just outside London, and I, I took this job intended to stay for two or three months and just have a, a, a kind of paid holiday. And while I was there, I met my wife, who was a student nurse, and... Um, and kind of fell for her and then really fell for England um, simultaneously. And that was 44 years ago, and I'm still with them both. Yeah, but in 1995, you went back. Yeah, but it wasn't... That, that often gets reported um, in the papers as if it was somehow leaving, going to America and then coming back to Britain again, that, uh, that, that this was, you know, indicated some kind of dudgeon on my part. It wasn't that at all. What happened was in 1995, we were living a very idyllic life in the Yorkshire Dales, but it was, it was becoming increasingly impractical for us to live in a remote place because of what I do and kids growing up and needing to be driven places all the time. So we decided to move somewhere else, and impetuously, really quite impetuously, we decided to go to the States for a while. We went with the intention of going for five years, mostly just to give our children the experience of living in, in America. They are half American, after all. And I just thought, I'd always felt very, very lucky um, to have two countries in my life and to have been, spent my, my life in two different places. And I just wanted to give the children some of that. I thought it would be even better for them, more magical, to have that as part of their formative years. And indeed it was. It was a great success for everybody in the family, except, curiously, for me. I didn't like being back in the States at all. I really... I went willingly. It was, I was part of the, the plan to go. But as soon as we got there, I just felt this real chill of, I don't want to be here. And, and the way I describe it is that... It, it felt to me just like moving back in with your parents in middle age. Yeah. You know, you, you may love them, you know, but you don't want to live with them anymore. And I felt like that about a whole country. That I, you know, I was still very fond of America. I wasn't disowning it in any way, but I just didn't want to live there anymore. My life was in Britain. And I found myself kind of imprisoned in my own native land for five years while I was waiting for time to come home. So have you left all your children, apart from your wife, in America? <laughs> no, they all came back. They're, they all, all, came they're back. all here now. One of them has since gone back to the States. Uh, he, he went to... Uh, he finished university here and went straight off to America and got a job as a ski instructor in, in uh, Colorado because this, the, we were in Norfolk and the skiing is not so good in Norfolk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, in the prologue of the book, you talk about the British citizenship test that you took. Is being recognized as a British citizen important to you then? Well, it wasn't. I mean, in theory, I didn't think it would be. I thought when I... I mean, one of the reasons that I was able to become a British citizen is that the United States dropped its objections to its citizens having a second nationality, having dual nationality. It, it furiously resisted that for years. 
Um, and it used to say that if you, you know, if you take out citizenship from another country, that automatically um, you, you lose your American citizenship until they realized that people were doing that in order to avoid tax liabilities to America. So then they said, well, you can't do it at all. And um, they really did. And, but then they, they loosened that. Uh, and so it was possible to take out a British passport, but without giving up the American passport. And I did it really thinking it was pretty much like you know, taking out a British driver's license. It was just something that, you, you know, that made life in the, my adopted country more convenient. It was something that was necessary to have. So I thought, it was, I thought of it when I was doing it as just really getting my papers in order, kind of. Uh, and then I went through the whole ceremony, and I was sworn in. And it was very sweet and touching, and I, you know, I, I was very pleased. But when, the, when I wrote, sent off for my passport and it arrived in the mail and I got it back in the post, I, I can't tell you how thrilled I was. I mean, I was just, it completely surprised me. I was totally startled by having this, you know, just this little thing. And for days I was going around just showing people, look what I, <laughs> I just, yeah. Uh, can you believe it? I, you know, I'm one of you, really. I had the exact... And, and, uh, and, and, it's so, and it's just been such a joy for me when I travel with my wife now for the first time in all these decades that I can go through the grown-up line with her at, <laughs> at the airports uh, instead of being you know, separated. So it was, it was, it's completely surprised me that, um, that it had much more of an emotional impact than I expected. Can you tell us about the Life in Britain knowledge test that you had to go through? Well, it's a strange thing. I mean, you do have to take this test, and, and nobody, they, they give you lots and lots of um, sample questions, and nobody, no, not one of you in this room, unless you've taken the test yourselves, could possibly, could possibly answer all the questions that are on the test, because they ask questions that nobody knows. They, um, <laughs> I mean, like how many, exactly how many members of parliament are there? Who knows? I mean, members of parliament won't be able to answer that, I'm sure. Uh, and one of them is you have, to, you have to say, who was Sake Dean Muhammad? He was the man who introduced shampoo to Britain in the 19th century. <laughs> so is the point of the test that they're trying to catch you out because you won't know a lot of well, the, the answers? Well, the reason that Sake Dean Muhammad is in there, I think, is because they're trying to uh, reinforce that it, this is a very multicultural nation and, and that right. the things that make it British include people who've come here from lots and lots of different lands, like those of us who are taking the test. Uh, and, uh, but it's, it's just asks a lot of questions about things that are fairly obscure. And it, and, it, and it sometimes makes you learn things that aren't, in fact, exactly true. The one that I, I dwelt on in some, some length in the book is, it says, explicitly says in the book, that the longest distance on the British mainland is from Land's End to John O'Groats which just isn't. I mean, the northernmost point in the mainland is, is about eight miles away from John O'Groats. There's a place called Dunnett Head. So that in itself is incorrect. But also to get from Land's End to John O'Groats, you have to zigzag. You can't do it in a straight line without crossing you know, the Bristol Channel. And so it becomes a pointless exercise to, to have that as your, your two extremes. So the start, my starting point for the book was I thought, what is actually the longest you can travel in a straight line in Britain without crossing salt water at any point? And the answer is that it's, it's from Bognor Regis, uh, more or less, to Cape Wrath in the northwest of Scotland. So that became my, my object. Those became my terminal points for this book. I started in Bognor Regis and finished at Cape Wrath. Now forever more known as the Bryson Line. Well, this, I suggested that it should be called that because yeah. I was the one who invented it. It will be. Long after we're all gone. It's a surprise in line, of course. Uh, your next object is a cow. I will hand this one to you. Thank you. It is closer to you. Yeah. Thank you. Now, I have to read something from this uh, machine uh, about the cow because the publishers, uh, Penguin, tried to... They thought that it would be a very good idea to entertain Cambridge more than Bill himself to have a live cow come onto the stage. <laughs> so they very intrepidly went about asking around companies that might provide and facilitate a cow to come in for an evening like this. So I'm going to read you what the email was, which says, many thanks for the thumbnail of the idea. We could provide a suitably calm cow for this event, as we have for many other events over the years. I think this is so quintessentially British as well, which is why I love it. However, in this instance, says she, I have reservations, which I think I should take the time to share so that you ultimately make an informed decision. <laughs> For health and safety, let's assume the stage floor is covered with a non-slip rubber matting throughout. It obviously is. On cue, the cow is led out by her handler, and on cue, shrieks of hilarity ensue from the jam-packed audience in the hall. 
The cow, although calm in nature, will doubtless shat herself on the stage. <laughs> she didn't say that, she said defecate. That was me, I'm sorry. In reaction to the hall's pandemonium, and so it spirals, a few things here, she says. One, the cow perhaps unintentionally ends up the butt of the joke, which is regrettable. <laughs> Two, part of the audience will think it's a great laugh, although, in 2015, perhaps fewer than you imagine. <laughs> Three, the other part of the audience will find it unacceptable, exploitative, and wholly inappropriate in terms of animal welfare. Quite right. And there lies the rub. A great idea that perhaps on closer examination may shoot Bill, Penguin, and Richard E. Grant and your good selves in the leg. I wish I could be more positive, but unfortunately, I'm unable to quote on this activity in view of the foregoing. However, I wish you every success for the podcast and in finding a suitable solution. Kind regards. <laughs> That is why you don't have a real cow. Which brings me roundly, that cut all that out. Uh, when did you first learn about cow attacks, Mr. Bill Bryson? I was crossing a, a, a field. I was walking part of the South Downs Way. Uh, we were uh, near Brighton. And I was doing it with a, a journalist from a walking magazine. I had just taken on the position of president of the campaign to protect rural England. And he was doing a profile of me, and he thought it would be interesting to do it as part of a walk. And as I was going to be doing for pleasure the South Downs Way uh, anyway, he came and joined us for me and two friends for, on, on, on the South Downs Way for a, a day. And it was from him I learned. He, as we climbed over a stile and we merged in a new field, he said, he said in this kind of very grave voice, look out, there's a, take care, there's a bull over there. And I was totally astounded. I thought, we're in the South Downs Way. This is a national footpath. There can't be bulls in the field. And he said, oh, no, absolutely. Just, you know. And I can't remember now whether farmers were allowed to keep bulls in with dairy cattle but not, but not beef cattle or, or vice versa. I can't remember now because um, this distinction is way too subtle for me. But, um, but anyway, it is possible and it's quite legal. And that got us to talking about cows and, and, and bulls. And, and then this guy, the journalist for Walking Magazine, he told me that the real danger is cows themselves, that cows attack and kill far more people than bulls do. And, and this totally astounded me because for the last, you know, 30 years that I've been walking, I've just, you know, been shaking a stick at cows and get out of the way, you know, and <laughs> quite boldly chasing them off, not knowing that they might turn on me uh, <laughs> on mass. And uh, anyway, so the next thing I did was I, I um, Googled cow attacks. And uh, when I got home the next day and found out that indeed cows do attack a lot. And when they do attack and kill somebody, it, it always makes the papers. Always. It's always front page news, or at least, you know, on the first couple of pages of the newspaper. And that, I decided on reflection, actually gave me a lot of comfort to live in a country where when cows attack and kill someone, it makes, it makes the national newspapers. Because in my country, if you want to make the national newspapers, you know, you have to get out an automatic weapon and kill <laughs> lots and lots of people. So the very fact that cow attacks um, are, are newsworthy here is, is sort of... in. in indicative of what a serene and happy nation this is. So, having said that, is there anything you do miss about the U.S.? Oh, sure, lots and lots of things. I, you know, I, I didn't leave the United States because of any dissatisfaction there. I just stumbled into this entirely new alternative life here. So there's lots of things I miss. I miss baseball very much. The World Series is just about to go on as we're right now. Um, and, I, you know, I would love to be over there watching it. I miss some of the food. I miss really, uh, really exciting weather. Uh, you won't know what I mean by that because you've never experienced it yourselves. But, but weather that can kill you, that, I mean, that really can kill you. Um, tornadoes and hurricanes and almighty floods and, and things. Uh, um, whereas here, you never get anything like that, do you? You just have a bit of rain with some bright spells. No. <laughs> Now, you meet some cows in Devon which you described as not aggressive, just stupid. This is a trait that you seem to see in quite a few people on your travels. <laughs> Do you agree with that? Well, um, stupidity is, is, it does become kind of a theme in the book. And it's not, it's not about British stupidity at all, although there's plenty of that, as we all know. Yeah. But, but it's about just the stupidity of the modern world. And, I mean, the, the thing that I complain about in the book the, the most is just, you know, how the world is just... I've, as you get old, as you pass 
60, I think, is, is really an important milestone in that regard, that you re realize that the world belongs to other people that, that, and that you're not quite in tune with things. And I just found myself at odds with things all the time. Can I read you a passage that illustrates Please. this better? Please well, this do. Is, this is early on in my experience of traveling around the country. Um, and this is, this is an absolutely true story. I'm slightly embarrassed to say. But it was, uh, I was in Bognor Regis and just at the very start of my trip. And for practical reasons, I, I, had, I needed something to eat in a hurry. I didn't have much time for the next bus. And so I, I went into a McDonald's which for me is always a mistake. <laughs> I should have known better. I have a little personal history with McDonald's, you see. Once, a few years ago, after a big family day out, we stopped at a McDonald's in response to cries from a back seat full of grandchildren pleading for an unhealthy meal. And I was put in charge of placing the order. I carefully interviewed everyone in our party, about 10 of us altogether from two cars, collated the order onto the back of an old envelope and approached the counter. Okay, I said decisively to the youthful attendant when my turn came, I would like five Big Macs, four quarter pound cheeseburgers, two chocolate milkshakes. At this point, someone stepped up to tell me that one of the children wanted chicken nuggets instead of a Big Mac. <laughs> Sorry, I said, and then resumed, make that four Big Macs, four quarter pound cheeseburgers, two chocolate milkshakes. At this point, some small person tugging on my sleeve informed me that, informed me that he wanted a strawberry milkshake and not a chocolate one. Right, I said, returning to the attendant. <laughs> I make that four Big Macs, four quarter pound cheeseburgers, one chocolate milkshake, one strawberry milkshake, three chicken nuggets. And so it went as I worked my way through and from time to time adjusted the group's long and complicated order. When the food came, the young man produced about 11 trays with 30 or 40 bags of food on them. <laughs> what's, what's this, I said. Your order, he replied, and read my order back to me off the till. 34 Big Macs, <laughs> 20 quarter pound cheeseburgers, 12 chocolate shakes. It turned out that instead of adjusting my order each time I restarted, he had just added to it. <laughs> I didn't ask for 20 quarter pound cheeseburgers. I asked for four quarter pound cheeseburgers five times. <laughs> same thing, he said. It's not the same thing at all. You can't be this stupid. Two of the young people waiting behind me in the queue sided with the young attendant. You did ask for all that stuff, one of them said. <laughs> the duty manager came over and looked at the till. It says 20 quarter pound cheeseburgers here, he said, as if it were a gun with my fingerprints on it. <laughs> I know what it says there, but that isn't what I asked for. One of my grown children came over to find out what was going on. I explained to him what had happened, and he weighed the matter judiciously and decided that, taken all in all, it was my fault. <laughs> I can't believe you're all this stupid, I said to an audience that consisted now of about 16 people, some of them newly arrived but already taking against me. Eventually, my wife came over and led me away by the elbow, the way I used to watch her lead jabbering psychiatric patients off to a quiet room. <laughs> She sorted the mess out amicably with the manager and attendant, brought two trays of food to the table in about 30 seconds, and informed me that I was never again to venture into a McDonald's, <laughs> whether alone or under supervision. <laughs> and now here I was in McDonald's again for the first time since my earlier fracas. I vowed to behave myself, but McDonald's is just too much for me. I ordered a chicken sandwich and a Diet Coke. Do you want fries with that? The young man serving me asked. I hesitated for a moment and in a pained but patient tone said, no, that's why I didn't ask for fries, you see. <laughs> We're just told to ask like, he said. Well, when I want fries, I said, generally I say something like, I would like some fries too, please. <laughs> that's the system I use. We're just told to ask like, he repeated. Do you need to know the other things I don't want, I said. <laughs> It's quite a long list. In fact, it's everything you serve except for the two things I just asked for. <laughs> We're just told to ask like, he repeated yet again, but in a darker voice, and deposited my two items on a tray, and urged me without the least hint of sincerity to have a nice day. <laughs> I realized that I probably wasn't quite ready for McDonald's yet. Bill, your, your next and penultimate object is a paperweight, but it is a picture of Stonehenge. 
what is it that you like about Stonehenge, and is it the obvious mystery of it? Well, it's, it's, not, just, it's not just Stonehenge. It's, it's um, the, the, the antiquity of Britain and the, and, the, and the abundance of antiquity everywhere, the fact that there's so much. I mean, coming as I do from a young nation, I, I'm just constantly, even now after all these decades, bowled over by just how much there is. I did a, a, a little calculation, and if you, um, if you made it your hobby, starting now, to, to visit just medieval parish churches in England, and you decided to do one new one a week for, the, for as long as it took, do you have any idea how long it would take? It would take 308 years to see them all. If you tried to do just the archaeological sites, it would take you 11,500 years to do them all. Uh, that's just the known ones now. It's more presumably would be discovered in the interval. Um, uh, but there's just that richness of stuff, the fact that there's just so much everywhere. I, 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 I absolutely love that, the idea that wherever you are in the, in the country, you just stumble across things that in where I come from, in Iowa, people would really travel hundreds of miles to see. I, I, I mean, if you had a thing like Stonehenge in Iowa, I, believe me, everybody you know, would travel from all over to see it have a job to explain to them how it got there, of course. But, <laughs> but, um, it, but, you know, anything, any medieval object would be just venerated. And here, all these parish churches are completely taken for granted because there's so many of them. It's both a curse and a blessing because one of the problems is that because you do have so much in Britain, people do tend to take them for granted. And so when things get knocked down or swept away, uh, they tend not to be lamented as they might be in, in a younger country. So do you feel that you are the unofficial curator of all of this to show us the way? I, well, I've actually, if you're asking, seriously, I feel as if I'm unofficially in charge of the whole planet. Oh. <laughs> but, no, but I mean, don't we all do that? I'll vote you, for you. Everybody, don't you go through life thinking, you know, they really ought to put me in charge of everything because, you know, I really think I would do a better job of it than they're doing. Yeah, fair. Uh, if you could offer one piece of advice to American tourists visiting the UK, what would it be? Um, learn, learn that it's not Edinburgh. Edinburgh. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I, actually, the thing is, I think the thing for a lot of Americans is would be just to, you know, don't expect it to be America. Don't, you know, just relax and try and just allow it to sweep over you. I had genuinely when we were living in New Hampshire. Quite a, I thought, quite a sophisticated next-door neighbor, worldly, and they'd gone on a cycling holiday. They'd gone from, I think it was from Vienna to Prague, and all he talked about was the, how much power they had in the showers every morning. And I just thought, is that really what was important to you? And it, clearly it was. So I think there's a tendency among Americans, I mean, I've seen this with my own family, my parents when they used to come here, of just trying to replicate American conditions wherever they were here. And obviously that's... That's, there's no point in traveling if, you, if that's all you want to do. Is there anything about Texas that you could read to us? Oh, Texas. I'd love to read this passage. Please. Because when I, when I do talk about... I do talk quite a lot about stupidity in the modern world, but I, as, a, as an illustration of the fact that this is not just a British phenomenon by any means, uh, this is a true story. This happened to me. I had to take a break from my traveling around Britain to go to, um, go to the States for work, uh, and this is something that happened to me in a hotel in Austin, Texas. When I checked in... The clerk needed to record my details, naturally enough, and asked for my home address. Our house in England doesn't have a street number, just a name, and I found in the past that that is more deviance than an American computer system can sometimes cope with. So I gave our London address. The girl typed in the building number and street name, then said, City? I replied, London. Can you spell that, please, she said. <laughs> I looked at her and saw that she wasn't joking. L-O-N-D-O-N, I said. Country? England, I said. Can you spell that, please? <laughs> I spelled England. She typed for a moment and said, the computer won't accept England. Is that a real country? <laughs> this is absolutely true. Uh, oh. I, I assured her it was. Try Britain, I suggested. I spelled that, too. Uh, twice, in fact, because we got the wrong number of T's on the first tab. <laughs> And the, Britain, and the computer wouldn't take that either. So I suggested Great Britain, United Kingdom, UK, GB, uh, and, and, that, and everything else I could think of. But all of those were rejected too. Eventually, I couldn't think of anything else to suggest. It'll take France, the girl said after a minute. <laughs> I beg your pardon, I said. You can have London, France. Seriously, I said. She nodded. Well, why not, I said. <laughs> So she typed London, France, and the system was happy. 
I finished the check-in process and went with my bag and plastic room key to a bank of elevators a few paces away. When the elevator arrived, a young woman was in it already, which I thought a little strange because the elevator had come down from the, one of the upper floors and now we were going back up there again. About five seconds into the ascent, she said to me in a suddenly alert tone, excuse me, was that the lobby back there? That big room with a check-in desk and revolving doors to the street? Why, yes, it was. <laughs> Shoot, she said, and looked chagrined. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that these incidents typify Austin, Texas, or America generally, or anything like that. But it did get me to thinking that our problems of stupidity in the world are more serious than I had supposed. <laughs> when functioning adults can't identify London, England, or a hotel lobby, I think it's time to be concerned. This is clearly a global problem, and it's spreading. Now, I'm not at all sure how we should tackle such a crisis, but on the basis of what we know so far, I would suggest, as a start, quarantining Texas. <laughs> Your final object, which is? Is a, is a walking stick. It's a very high-tech walking stick. I bought this um, in, in Colorado when I was there last year, and what, what's, well, you probably didn't even care. Why am I telling you all this? But uh, it, it breaks apart. You can, you can make it into small pieces, and it, it fits neatly into a small bag or, or a rucksack, which is something that walking sticks very rarely do. So I'm very pleased, was very pleased to have it, and it's extremely light. But the relevance of it, I'm sorry I got distracted there for a moment, but the relevance of it is that, um, well, I, I'm not quite sure. I really love walking, and, and I tried to walk as much as I could. I do think it's the best way to see any place, but especially it's a good way to see Britain. Uh, and also, uh, I think because I thought it might lead us into a discussion of the British countryside, which I've touched on already, but it is something that I, I do think is the most glorious achievement of, of this nation. The fact that you have this... You know, it's such a finite place, and you have this landscape that has been so, so worked over, and yet, you know, is, is used for two, two reasons, for both productive reasons to, you know, it's farmed, it produces food and all that, but also as an amenity. That's something that, that's an idea that just doesn't exist in America. Land has one purpose in America. You either farm it or you, or you enjoy it, you know, make it into a national park. The idea that doing both of those together in the same place, I thought, is just brilliant. And do you remember what age you were when walking became something other than just sort of rumbling around like a toddler, where you thought, this is something that is your vocation in life? Well, I... I um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was fully grown, and when it was after I moved here, I mean, I had never walked for pleasure in America. I, I'm, I'm an American. who I never had. Who, and, um, I mean, I like Americans. I, you know, if I was on a travelator, I stood. Uh, I just, you know, if you didn't have to walk, if you didn't have to use your legs, I didn't. And then I came here and discovered that people did walk for pleasure, and I got taken up to the Lake District by a friend and for, for walking weekend. And, and when, at first I thought it was crazy, because it was out of season, it was, the weather was foul. It was just, and we were just killing ourselves walking up a steep hill. And I kept saying, "Why? You know, what are we? Why are we doing this? What, what's up there?" And he just said, "The top." And I thought, "Well." <laughs> uh, and then when we got there, there were hundreds of other people up there, all kind of huddled around a cairn or a big rock or something. And I, and and then it, it did actually hit me that this was fun, and there was a feeling of satisfaction in getting to the summit of a hill and, and enjoying a view that you couldn't otherwise have seen unless you had made the effort and gone to the exertion of getting up there. And once I discovered that, then, you know, it really felt to me like I had a lot of making up to do, that I'd missed years and years of pleasure from walking. And now I do. I mean, it's the, it is the one thing that I, I still can do a lot of. I mean, I, I, I do walk quite big distances and, and um, do enjoy it. It's a strange thing, because I've never really quite figured out why it is so pleasurable. If, you know, because you're sort of in a state of mindlessness, and it's just moving one foot in front of another, but there's something profoundly satisfying about that. And uh, what, is there a difference between walking the Appalachian Mountains or walking in your birth country and your adopted country? Yeah, a, a, a complete difference. The, the walking on the Appalachian Trail, which was the, the, what I tried to do for um, my book, A Walk in the Woods, it's, it's, it's a complete wilderness experience. I mean, you go out into the woods for five or six or seven days at a time, and, and eventually you, you have to leave the trail and go into a, a town somewhere to resupply. You, you can only carry about a week's worth of food at a time. 
But most of the time, most nights, you know, you're going to bed, you're putting up a tent in, in the middle of nowhere, or you're sleeping in a very rough shelter, which are provided at intervals along the trail. But they're very, very rough and very uncomfortable. And, um, and they're open. It's not like a cabin or anything. It's just a sleeping platform. Uh, and you, so, so it's all privation. I mean, you really do, um, you know, uh, shit in the woods, and you uh, and you go without showers, and you're hungry, and it's and whatever the weather is doing, you just live through it. So it's it's really hard and really, really, really awful a lot of the time. I mean, really, really hard. Uh, I've never done anything so hard in my life. Whereas walking in, in Britain is, you know, is you go out, you have a good day's exertion, but at the end of the day, you come down off the hills, you go to a nice pub, and you have a hot shower and a hot meal and a couple of pints of beer at least, and, and you know, you're much more comfortable. Then you get up the next day and, and repeat the exercise. You know, to me, that's the way to walk. <laughs> Could you, could you ever have imagined that, that when you began doing this for a living that Robert Redford, sex god of the 70s, uh, would be playing Bill Bryson in a movie of your book? Um, when he was nearly 80, yes. <laughs> but the fact is, and it has to be said, because I, I was 44 when I did the book, and he is nearly 80 now, but it has to be said, he looks better now at nearly 80 than I did when I was... <laughs> 44. Um, no, I didn't. I, I mean, it never occurred to me. Never, I never thought of it in that way. Um, but I was really pleased. I mean, genuinely very pleased that, that it was him. He, it was his company that bought it, and he was always the driving force, the driving creative force behind the making of this movie. And there was a huge, for me, a huge comfort factor in that because, you know, you know that Robert Redford doesn't make dumb movies, and yeah. is, you know, whatever he does with it, it'll probably be something that I'll be quite pleased to be associated with. I won't be... So my only fear was that somehow you would lose interest in it, and it was, it would, the movie, the rights would be sold on to somebody, and it would turn, turn out to be a Jim Carrey movie or something, and, um, <laughs> uh, or, or the Ferrelli brothers would make it into, you know, American Pie does the Appalachian Trail, or so, I do, who knows? <laughs> but, um, but, but as long as it was Robert Redford, I was very, very happy, and I think that was, was borne out. He, I think he made a... I know it had very mixed reviews, but I think the movie he, he made was, from my point of view anyway, I mean, it was very faithful to the spirit of the book, and I was entirely happy with it. So the Bryson line, who would you have, who would be the equivalent Robert Redford in England that you would cast to play you in the English version here? <laughs> cool. Do you prefer work walking on your own or with friends or your wife? Oh, uh, I all, all uh, <laughs> no, I all of them. I mean, all of those. I I do I do what? enjoy solitude. I mean, I really, you know, I do enjoy it. When I'm doing a book, I pretty much have to do it by myself. There are occasions in, in the books um, where my wife or one or more of my kids has been with me. They don't necessarily appear in the book, but you know, they have sometimes been there with me. But by and large, the problem with having um, a close person with you when you're doing gathering material for a book is that you're distracted and you're talking about your, your, your life rather than absorbing the, the experiences that are going on around you. So I do try to do those, those on my own, and I do enjoy that. I mean, I do, I really do enjoy the experience of being alone in a strange town and going into the pub and just being on my own. But I, I also very much enjoy being with friends or family or, or, or with my wife. So, but um, not for working situations, I, I, but... You know, so it's, the whole mixture is, why, is what I like, all of it. So do you think that if there is that thing that when you go to a place for the first time that your, your sense of everything is much more heightened and your observations are much more acute than if you've been there before or you're with your friends or with your family? I do know it varies a lot. One of the problems I had, real problems I had with this book, the Little Dribbling, was the fact that I... You know, usually when I'm doing a travel book, I'm, I'm somewhere that I don't know. I'm in Australia, and I'm, I am discovering the country. Every day is a, is a, a new episode of discovery, and I'm um, learning more about a culture that I don't know much of anything about. Britain, completely the opposite problem. N nothing, that I, nothing I saw in the country was really going to surprise me, um, because even, I was, even when I was going to places I'd never been before, I already have strong expectations of what I'm going to find there. I, you know, I... Grimsby did not astonish me that it wasn't. A, uh, 
apart and, from its name. And, and, and there was also this feeling I had all the time, which, was, which I hadn't ever had in a book before, was, um, you know, I don't really need to be here. And in the sense that most of what I write about in the book is things that, the same observations I could have had if I'd stayed at home. I mean, I'm talking about just, you know, British character, British culture, things that go on in British life. You know, I, I didn't need to be sitting in a hotel room in, in you know, Lincolnshire uh, watching a television program in order to talk about it. I could have been staying at home and, and to talk about it. So I, I felt at times as if, as if this was, my journey was more contrived than, or more artificial than, than it would, would have been otherwise. And I think that's just an inevitable consequence of doing a book about a country that you've lived in for 40 years, that, that, you know, that it couldn't possibly be a journey of discovery. Walking is clearly one of the, your great pleasures, but you talk about the British being good at small pleasures. What do you mean by that? Oh, I, I do something I really admire about, about the British. I mean, you know, in America, in, if you're going to have fun, it's going to involve an investment of money. It's, you're going to need equipment. You're probably going to need a personal trainer of some kind, yeah. you know? <laughs> uh, and in Britain, it's just like the littlest things give people pleasure. And I, I, I say that with total admiration. Just, that, you know, it, well, I can, I can remember the moment it occurred to me that this is I really, you know, why I really liked Britain was I was genuinely was sitting in a, in a dreary seaside cafe somewhere, uh, uh, having been out for a walk, and, and I ordered a, a cup of tea and a tea cake, and what was presented to me, I went, ooh, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew then that I'd gone over to the other side, you know. <laughs> And, and well, a hot beverage and a biscuit was enough to satisfy And that's the, one of the things that I think is the most adorable about the British, is that they do have this capacity to be absolutely knocked out by the most trivial <laughs> things. And I say that with genuine admiration. Wow. Honorary citizen, this brings us to the end of this live edition of the Penguin Podcast. Bill, thank you very, very much indeed. And thank you, the audience. And for those who haven't heard the audiobook yet, Richard Digence has composed music especially for it. And he's created a series of instrumental pieces in between the chapters, chapters inspired by the places that Bill went to. And we thought we would play out with Richard's song, The Bryson Line, inspired by The Road to Little Dribbling. Traveling along the Bryson Line Your small island just won't be the same As you think of each place with unusual name Each mile hopefully brought you a laugh Until we ended up at Cape Wrath As we go a separate way Bugger bugger we all say Britain is great, so let's not be pedantic. North seas in the east, Irish seas, the Atlantic. Faces and places entwine as we travel the Bryson line. Bill Bryson, thank you, thank you. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the Penguin Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Penguin UK Books and join us on Facebook to see pictures and videos from this very special recording. An excerpt from the Road to Little Dribbling audiobook, read by Nathan Osgood. For the National Geographic article, I spent a morning on the lake with a young scientist from the Freshwater Biological Association without for a moment understanding a single thing she told me. I found the file with my notes in them the other day, and this is the sort of thing they say. Biotic assessment, dichotomous? Rotifers, ostracods, fairy shrimps, V difficult to measure. Outlook, not good. Diptera pupae, V alarming. Eventually, I stopped taking notes and then stopped listening altogether and just enjoyed the scenery while she prattled away and dipped containers in the water. The man driving our boat was a park ranger named Steve Tatlock, and he told me that on a busy day you could have as many as 1,600 powerboats on Windermere, an amazing number for a lake of its size, all of them speeding wildly, many pulling water skiers and slicing through fortillas of sailboats, rowboats, canoes, inflatable rafts, and even some hardy swimmers. 
filling the lake with noise and danger and irksome, bouncy waves. England doesn't have a lot of lakes, and most are closed to motorboats, so Windermere was a rare place where people could drop a boat in the water and let her rip. Tatlock asked me if I wanted to experience the speed water skiers went, and of course I did. He let the scientist stow her stuff, then threw open the throttle, and we took off with a velocity normally only seen in cartoons. We bounced across the water, barely touching the surface. It seemed wildly reckless, but at least it was a quiet morning, and we had a few acres of empty water to ourselves. Imagine, 1,600 other boats doing this, Tatlock shouted. Moving about in all directions at top speed? It's absolutely mad! In 2005, after 30 years of arguing, a 10-mile-per-hour speed limit was introduced on Windermere, so the lake is much improved for those who value tranquility. The Road to Little Dribbling, More Notes from a Small Island is available now on CD or to download on iTunes and Audible.